Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China. I am your host today, Jeremy Goldcorn. Kaiser is otherwise engaged, but he sends his regrets to our guests and listeners. Our guests today are two Seneca regulars. Welcome back to Tanya Brannigan, Beijing correspondent for The Guardian. Hi, Tanya. Hey. And Will Mars, whom I will not annoy by calling a PR maven or guru or expert, but will speak fondly of uh, of his blogging at the Rectified Name and Image Thief blogs. Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Will. So let's get straight into it. Three people in the podcast, three topics. The first topic is an experiment that we've been trying without a great deal of success over the last month to develop, but it's called the Dunway Week, and it's a, le- it's a selection which we'll also publish on Dunway.com. Of the best reading materials in English over the last week or so,、uh, and I have three suggested readings, and I'm going to ask our guests to disagree with them or suggest different ones.、Um, so the first story I think is uh, that uh, for the first time in since I can remember, GDP growth、uh, has dipped below eight percent in China according to official figures, and the eight percent has always seemed to be the, the magic number, right? Um, and the Wall Street Journal, the China Real Time blog,、uh, had a pretty good posting on it with lots of charts.、Uh, what do you guys think of that story? Do you think that's an important story? And who wrote about it well? It's certainly an important story. Here's a question: Did GDP growth ever go below eight percent back in two thousand eight, two thousand and nine, when there was the initial slowdown followed by China's big stimulus, or did it never get that low? I know it was starting from a high base then. So this time round, it's basically the worst figures since two thousand and nine, sort of at the depths of the financial crisis last time.、Um, I think what's a bit different in this case is that there seems to be sort of relative optimism that it's probably. Bottomed out. Now everybody's being very cautious.、Uh, you know, things in Europe look pretty grim. The U.S. still looks somewhat fragile, shall we say?、Um, but there's, I think, there was perhaps slightly more anxiety, even dare we say, almost panic in places.、Um, and the other big difference, of course, this time is that they won't be engaging in a, a massive stimulus、uh, package, partly. Because of the sort of the effects of the last one, but I mean, there's no question that this is important. And although it's kind of partly related to the the wider woes in the world, you've also got to remember that China's obviously reaching the stage that everybody always said it had to reach. It it couldn't go on growing at the rate it's grown at for the last sort of twenty odd years. It was just unsustainable.、Um, and so I think we are entering a point where growth is going to be slower. So. Two questions come to mind for me.、Uh, one is, do we believe it's bottomed out? Even if that's what some—well, there's various points of view about that. Do we in this room believe that it is bottomed out? And are we qualified to have an opinion on that? Probably not. And the second thing is, even if this is a necessary adjustment, because I do think this is an important story, is it going to be a painful adjustment in the near term? And obviously. The government is preoccupied with many issues right now. Stability paramount among them because of the upcoming party congress and change of government and some of its other recent turmoil. So, could this lead to difficult times in the year ahead? I think that question is a good place to end that topic, unless anyone has a particular article to recommend on the subject. Not different from the Wall Street Journal one. It's a good place to start. Okay, so then let's move on to、uh, the second topic I've chosen for Dunway Week, which is、uh, somewhat obscure and perhaps I'm biased. It, it's an account on the Global Voices、uh, group blog and translation blog. 
uh, originally written in Chinese on Weibo by uh, a Chinese person living in South Africa. Uh, it's an account of a tax on foreign-owned businesses. So if I may read from it, on June 27th, riots started in Bochabello, east of Bloemfontein, in South Africa, in reaction to the local municipality's decision to remove makeshift stalls and evict street vendors from a site. Um, so in other words, you have South African equivalent of Chungwan removing the informal traders. Uh, and then the rioters' anger turned towards foreign-owned businesses and more, th more than 13 shops owned by Bangladeshis, Somalis, Eth and Ethiopians were attacked and looted. Um, Shin Bailey, a Chinese employee of a fac factory nearby, provided an eyewitness account of the rioting and looting on Weibo. And it's quite interesting reading, both in terms of Chinese attitudes towards being uh, in Africa uh, and the experience of Chinese in, in, in South Africa, at least. What were the Chinese attitudes in this case? Uh, well, the way Global Voice has framed it, they sort of said it talks about stereotypes of race. I actually didn't find it sort of racist. I mean, uh, she talks about Heiren, black people, in the way that Chinese people do with less, um, w you know, with no discomfort at all, the way Europeans and Americans will kind of not really want to say, use the word black people or blacks in a certain kind of way. The Chinese don't have that kind of sensitivity, and she writes about it like that. I didn't think it was particularly racist. Um, but, uh, you know, the, 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 it does show the, the fears of uh, Chinese living in South Africa. I mean, the conclusion of the postings by Global Voices, she uh, says that she's going to learn how to shoot a gun. <laughs> so anyway, interesting. No comments on that. Nothing to add to that. Okay. So um, then, um, the, uh, do you have any other topics you'd like to add? Because the third story that we've chosen is one we're actually going to focus on tonight. So I have one that I'll, I'll throw out there that I thought was important this week, and that was last weekend's collapse of the ASEAN summit, which was largely devoted to discuss. Well, I should say that the issue that hung over that summit was the South China Sea, which many of the participating countries, particularly Vietnam and the Philippines, have an interest in, and which China obviously has an interest in. And what was notable about the summit, besides a fair amount of Chinese bluster leading up to it, particularly with regards to American participation, was that it it came apart. Uh, the summit disintegrated. They failed to come up with a unified statement with the communique. The whole thing sort of collapsed into disarray, and uh, apparently some of the diplomats are trying to piece it all back together again. Uh, the South China Sea issue has picked up a lot of heat in the last few months. It doesn't seem to be going away. It raises many questions about China's greater ambitions uh, for the area, about who's calling the shots in the policy and how directly involved the military is. Uh, and what its role is, and many other things. Uh, and I think it's going to continue to be interesting. One of the stories I read about it, if people want to read up on it, is uh, uh, Asia Sentinel's story, Meltdown for ASEAN over South China Sea. They're talking about the Indonesians' efforts to kind of stitch the rubble back together. There has been other coverage of this uh, since last weekend. Yeah, I mean, it's the first time in 45 years of ASEAN that a foreign minister's meeting has ended without a joint communique. Um, and as you see, I mean, I think what's sort of interesting is not so much or not just this very, very complex territorial dispute, which involves sort of six powers and is, uh, or gets quite labyrinthine and technical, but the sort of the underlying issue, which is what role is China playing as it grows and how different countries are responding to that. Um, the issue at ASEAN was basically that Cambodia was 
not prepared to sort of talk about the things that other countries wanted right. to talk about. They were about accused of various that. skullduggery, like turning the microphones of some of the uh, the foreign ministers off when they wanted to raise the topic. And it's quite uh, colorful. Yeah. Well, so you, I, what a collection of people must be at those meetings. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I mean, as you say, it's it, it, it's fascinating. It's all about sort of the rise of China and, of course, how the US is responding to that, particularly with the pivot to Asia. OK, very good. Well, then let's move on. So we don't really have any disagreement. We've got four stories. GDP growth dips below 8 um, percent. Uh, South China Sea shenanigans and the collapse uh, of, of ASEAN and then a slightly quirky one, which is a slightly old account of Chinese account of riots and looting in South Africa. But the fourth one then is a fantastic story. And it's not quirky at all. No, it's not at all quirky. And fortunately, Tanya just uh, published a, a story about this in The Guardian. Piranhas attack. Isn't this wonderful? So, uh, Like we Tanya, said, not quirky at all. <laughs> no, not at all quirky. <laughs> Flesh-eating fish in China. What, what's the story, Tanya? Well, it's the old journalistic sore, isn't it, you know, dog bites man is not a story, man bites dog is. Uh, in this case, however, fish bites man turns out to be a, a much better story than we would have anticipated. It's a, a guy who was washing his dog in a river down in Guangxizhuang and uh, got attacked, he said, by three piranhas. He managed to catch one, take it home. I have to say the bit perhaps I liked most about it was the fact he was attempting to have his uh, own back by cooking it for dinner. He'd already cut it up and his mum was ready to stick it on the grill, but sadly officials turned up at that point and took it off to be identified. So <laughs> supper was not to be. What a jip for him. Uh, but then what happened, I, I think your, after your story came out, actually there were some developments on this because then the, uh, th this happened in, in, in Liuzhou and Guangxi. So it's a, a, a medium-sized Chinese city, would you say? with a big river running through it. Yeah, I think they've got about half a million people. Um, and it uh, caused some alarm, although many people were apparently still swimming quite happily. I have to say, if I was them, I'd probably be more worried about the pollution than the piranhas on the whole. Well, exactly. I, I, point of view. I, I actually have some knowledge of the, the city of Liuzhou because for many years I've followed the, the blogger, the, the Liuzhou Lawai, Ken, down in Liuzhou. Hi, Ken, if you're listening to this. And he just... Uh, posts occasionally about things that go on in Liuzhou. And there's quite a lot of this kind of weird thing going on in Liuzhou. It wasn't surprising to me that this was the city. He talks about it's a very popular place for old people to swim, kind of like the equivalent of Rutan Park, except a river for swimming. Uh, but he says it is a pretty filthy river. Uh, and he had some updates to the story, and they, they were also covered in some other media, I think, after your story was published, Tanya, which was that the, the Liuzhou, they offered a bounty, right? You covered that. Yeah, so I mean, what, what happened with the bounty? This was terrific. It was a pretty hefty bounty. It's a thousand kwai per piranha. Um, uh, the the city, I think, had attempted to sort of trawl the river itself, managed to kind of denude it of vast amounts of fish, but not actually any piranhas. And so they said to the amateurs, "If you go out and you manage to catch a piranha, we'll give you a thousand kwai." The the obvious problem with this being, which anybody with any respect for China's tradition of untru would have predicted <laughs> well is, of course, that people went on Taobao and discovered they could buy them for about 20 quire throw. So they arbitraged the piranha solution. You could see it coming. And uh, <laughs> the cities now had to call off the piranha hunt. So the citizens of Liuzhou will be fending for themselves. <laughs> but, so, the per how, the how piranhas are stuff three of them. That's <laughs> what I want to know. <laughs> how did he count the fish that bit him? Yeah, you know, I mean... You know, well, that, I, not I the guess, clearest looking river out there. Come on, you've seen these piranha films. He must have watched them converge, you know, in a threatening manner. Uh, you did have, you used in The Guardian some of the nasty pictures of his hand, right, didn't you? He, he did get 
you know, they can give you a nasty bite. Well, I mean, I was slightly suspicious of this story when it yeah. when it first sort of surfaced and, you know, people said, oh, this guy says he's been bitten by a piranha. You always slightly wonder these days if there's going to be some hoax or something. But, you know, right. he was watching of... his dog in the river and it was a piranha that bit him. <laughs> Of well, it course. may have been it may have been the frenetic activity of the dog, possibly that attracted the piranhas. The uh, experts think because apparently piranhas like movement and uh, agitation. Um, that seems like a testable thesis if you're in Liuzhou and you happen to have a dog handy. Depends how much <laughs> you like your dog. Not that I treatment of dogs. I'm just saying, in the spirit of scientific inquiry, some dogs must be broken. If you go to Liuzhou, take a dog. Yeah, <laughs> um, particularly okay. if you're swimming in the river, you're going to want to have a dog handy. So this is very funny. It's one of those stories that's kind of only in China, or perhaps not, but definitely in China. Piranhas uh, biting citizens of Liuzhou, bounty offered, and then people try and make money off buying other piranhas off the internet and getting the money from the government. It's very cute and quirky. But there, it does actually, lie, behind it lies a fairly serious issue, which is invasive species. Um, none of us are experts on invasive species, but we have familiarized ourselves a little with some of the literature. But let's first look at the piranha. How did the piranha get into the waters of Liuzhou, uh, Tanya? We think from, uh, sort of from a, a pet owner, basically. Um, presumably some James Bond-style villain who had his fish pond at home, ready for anyone who crossed him, uh, and then he decided he didn't need them anymore. Anybody who's been to an aquarium store in China can easily envision piranhas being used as a, you know, as a decorative item in fish tanks. So it's the it's the classic thing where somebody basically seems to have got bored of this and tipped it into the river, we think. I mean, what's not clear is whether it was a whole bunch of them they got rid of, or whether the sort of the slightly more alarming possibility is that they may have actually bred in there, but... Who knows? It's possible. It's been known to happen. Uh, we've had our share of, I should say, by way of disclaimer, I am not an expert uh, in invasive species, but I did spend my entire college education studying fish. So by coincidence, that may prove to be useful here. Not especially useful in a PR career, but for these sorts of discussions, it comes in handy. Uh, we have had our problems, uh, ironically enough, with species introduced from China in the U.S., and fish have been a big part of it. So in the U.S., they have the, uh, the snakehead, what they call heiyu here, which are in the East Coast waterways and are improving. Uh, uh, they were brought over for food purposes and are proving impossible to eradicate. Uh, Asian carp are a huge infestation in the uh, Great Lakes system. And uh, there's a great deal of worry. I don't know that they've gotten into the main lakes, but they're in the tributary waterways. And there's a great deal of concern that they will devastate the Great Lakes fisheries if, if they establish themselves, which they seem to be doing. In the Bay Area where I come from, we didn't have fish, but we did have zebra mussels, which were allegedly from China and which were dumped out of the ballast of ships from China and have colonized the bay and plugged up the intake pipes and everything else they can possibly grow on. So it does happen. It happens in both directions. Well, let's take a quick look. We, we looked at, the three of us, we looked at two papers, one from 2001, I think, and one from 2008, that document some of the invasive species in China. A lot, let's, it let, uh, Many. Let's go through some of the lists, just hi, some of the highlights. And if you have any comments on these species, you are welcome to fire away. I picked out a few highlights. Mammals, the brown or Norway rat. Isn't that Rattus. everywhere, though? I mean, you know, at this point. And also Sladen's rat. I don't know. Two kinds of rats. Okay, so it came on ships or something. Birds. The Canada goose. I say blame Canada. The fish. <laughs> mosquito fish. 
Do you know what mosquito fish are, Will? I don't, but it sounds like it might be useful, particularly in what uh, Tanya and I were discussing earlier today is the upcoming height of the mosquito season. The mm. Global Times said that mosquito season is upon us. Right. And a 16% uh, increase this year in right. We're already seeing it in activity. my apartment, I can assure you. Okay. Insects. We have termites, which apparently were not native to China. Uh, the loblolly pine mealybug which I included just because it's got such a silly name. So, so the here's, mealybug. Here's, here's a point. Before you go on with the list, and it's a great list, and we should by all means continue, one of the things that I do remember from my distant college education is that invasive species often find it easier to establish themselves in what we politely term stressed environments. And I'm hard-pressed to think of an environment that's more broadly stressed than China's. Uh, so it would seem to be... This may not be the correct turn of phrase, but fertile territory for invasive well, species. Well, I, I think, you know, a stressed environment is probably a good lead-on to the next two species I'd like to mention, which are my personal favorites on this list, the American cockroach and the German cockroach, both of which apparently were not native to China but are now here. And if you've ever lived or worked in Qijiayuan diplomatic compound, as some, some journalists listening to this, you have some experience with cockroaches. Uh, I've got to say, having, American spent, cockroaches, having spent so much time in Thailand in my youth, you know, those are not cockroaches. Unless it's an inch long, I don't think they really care. I agree. I lived in Singapore for eight years where the cockroaches were the size of running shoes. They were so big you could hear them while they, while they ran. And they flew in crazy random patterns that almost always for some reason ended up near your face. But those are cute tropical bugs. They're not like these... No, no, no. The, no? The, the, those, we're not talking about like the, the Madagascar hissing cockroach or things that you show people in science class. We're talking about enormous, slimy, brown, drained cockroaches that look like they come out of the Flintstones. Okay. Sorry, well, I, I have bad memory. <laughs> the two of you, okay. I shall uh, cease talking about cockroaches. Um, Plants, invasive plants, three I, I just picked uh, because I like the sound of the names of the list. Mexican tea, love apple, and ragweed. Ragweed is, uh, ragweed is good. Now, one thing I noticed looking through this list is that the majority, I think, of both plant and animal species seem to come from the Americas. Will? Uh, I don't have an opinion on that. I do remember going over the list. I remember it being a... a I was really blaming a, you. That's why oh, I said, well, it? I was oh, blaming well, your people. <laughs> the only thing I've imported to China uh, other than my family are cats, and uh, I don't think uh, I'm going to be the source of China's invasive cat problem. But well, I'm, I stand ready to absorb the blame if society... Yeah, it's collective guilt we're talking about, collective y guilt. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think what's striking is, you know, everywhere has had a problem with invasive species. I come from an island nation, and... God knows we've had our fair share of things turning up. I mean, the, the famous ones are sort of, you know, uh, red squirrels who've basically been driven out by grey squirrels, but but all sorts of other species as well. Uh, and in fact, in my swift Google research before coming here, I discovered we now have a non-native species secretariat in the UK. A secretariat? It doesn't sound like a very dramatic way of dealing the problem, but... Um, it's obviously some sort ah, of it's a government department like yes. dedicated. Ah. Right, right, right. Well, yeah, if it gets upgraded to ministerial status, we'll know. Well, that no, it's a real really problem. serious. But, but I mean, the, the point is, in in China, it's sort of happening so quickly because suddenly China is opening up. It's shipping vast amounts of things every which way. Um, and so there's this sudden influx, influx. of species although over a very I, short time in a very stressed environment. Although it's interesting to note because I think the, the other paper that we, we looked at today, the one thing I picked out, it had a couple of charts which looks at the date when an outbreak was first detected. And both plants and animals, um, quite a few of them are uh, in the 1930s. So basically, you know, it started when uh, America and China were doing a lot of trade before the revolution. 
it started, you know, if it was detected in the 30s, it had probably gone on a little earlier. So some of the earlier species, in fact, were not, uh, they're not uh, newly arrived. But the majority, I think, of the, uh, the ones currently causing a problem are. So anytime you start having an expansion of, I mean, there was some of that probably dates back to the Silk Road. You know, I'm sure some of the pests were brought in way back on the camel caravans. But anytime you have an expansion of international trade and links, uh, you know, biology is, is robust and it finds ways to sneak around, whether that's in the ballast water of ships or whether that's packed in, uh, it's packed in cargo containers. There was just a story this week, this was a cute and fuzzy story, not an invasive species story, particularly about a kitten that survived a six-week shipment in a cargo container from Shanghai to Long Beach, was it? Uh, so, you know, if a kitten, cute and fuzzy kitten, can make it in a cargo container for six weeks, uh, then I'm sure plenty of hardier species like find the American cockroach, like the American problem. cockroach, mm-hmm. will find incidental ways in and out on ships, in cargo containers, in trucks, uh, across all the porous borders, and uh, nothing like uh, lax enforcement and a lot of smuggling to exacerbate those kind of situations, as well as an infatuation with exotic pets and animals. I mean, the other thing, and Will's probably better place to comment on this than me, is that when it's sort of cute and fuzzy, we don't tend to mind it so much. And so when it's piranhas and we think flesh-eating beasts, you know, we start to worry slightly more. But actually, it's not necessarily whether something is a, a nice or nasty animal. Fundamentally, it comes into a into the ecosystem where it hasn't previously been, and it's going to upset the balance. Well, people tend to... It's, it's not just what's cute and fuzzy. Ask the Australians about rabbits. Yeah. Um, where they're considered an enormous imported pest. Uh, But it is what people notice or have contact with. So they notice insects or they notice things that have obvious economic effects when fisheries are destroyed or when crops are destroyed. These these sorts of things attract attention. But I, I think it does happen in more insidious ways sometimes, and it happens in ways that are harder to recognize. You don't end up with tigers as an imported uh, is an invasive species. You end up with things that are under the radar, hard to see, with plants, uh, uh, with things that people tend not to notice or, or after a certain amount of time goes by may not even think of as important. When I grew up in California, I thought eucalyptus trees were what we had, but it turns out they were transplanted and then they went crazy and they burst into flame at, the, you know, at any opportunity. Uh, yeah, eucalyptus trees in South Africa and California were one of the less bright ideas of the British Empire. Not a work of genius. <laughs> uh, <laughs> on the spotlight's turning to me <laughs> now. We've yes, not, not, well no, no, we'll blame your lot. So Jeremy was talking about plants. I remember a lot of snails on the list. So a lot of these things creep in at the margins. They don't get noticed because they're not megafauna. Or they may not have immediate effects. It may take time for them to reach uh, a level where they have a serious impact. Or they may never have a serious impact if you're lucky. But... Uh, they, they, uh, these two reports, I mean, they, they do have an impact, some of them. Particularly, it seems, the insects and plants, on sometimes on uh, wilderness, but it seems that the area that's best understood is the effect on agriculture. And, well, that's these where you have an economic, economic losses, right? Um, let's Before we end this topic, I'd like to ask Tanya again. So you did a story, you know, piranhas attack. This is a kind of a story that would you could do in The Sun or The Guardian. Uh, or the New York Times, essentially. It's, but it is a kind of a tabloidy story in a way. Do you find, you know, you get more readers of stories like this than something that you've done a lot of, a really lot of original reporting <laughs> and it's really serious and really interesting? Well, and really on the spot. <laughs> Almost certainly. I mean, I think if you bear in mind, uh, John Watts, my colleague who's just now departed for Latin America, the bane of his life was the fact that probably nothing he had ever poured his heart and soul in, into and done brilliant reporting on ever got as 
many readers as the story about the exploding watermelons. Right, the exploding watermelons. So yes, I mean, we do slightly, you know, we do more research than the sun does. We check it's true. With the piranha story, I phoned up a couple of experts and made sure it was feasible and so forth. But, um, and, and there is kind of a serious tale behind it, which is the invasive species. But also it's fun. It's yeah, a lot yeah, easier yeah. to get readers for that stuff. Unless the one you're getting, you're the one getting bit. It will be interesting to see if they establish themselves as a breeding population down there. Then you'll have some fun. Well, I, you know, I'm sure there's a way around that. We can spread a rumor that eating piranhas is very Increases good for your masculinity. Yes. And uh, they'll, they'll be gone in no time, um, even in South America. Okay, so enough about piranhas. Um, never enough about piranhas. No. <laughs> on to our final topic of the evening, which will, you will be our guide through this one. ZTE Iran Gate is what I'm dubbing, dubbing it. <laughs> and you've just uh, published a post on the group blog, you're a member of uh, Rectified Name, about this. What is going on with ZTE? What is ZTE and why are they in trouble in America again? So ZTE is one of the two major Chinese telecoms equipment companies. The other one is, of course, Huawei. They're uh, both based in Shenzhen in South China. They've both built their businesses fairly successfully, primarily on network infrastructure, not mobile phones, but the unsexy stuff you don't see that lives behind the scenes. Um, ZTE has got into trouble. Reuters reported back in March that uh, ZTE was purchasing American technology, uh, but then rather than keeping it for its own use, which was, uh, I guess, ostensibly what it had been purchased for, was repackaging and reselling that gear to Iran, where it would, it turned out, make fine infrastructure for an internet monitoring and censorship system. so that story is a scandal. And then what's happened is that last week of uh, the website, The Smoking Gun, has published uh, what is apparently a, a, an FBI affidavit uh, where uh, that includes quite a number of details concerning ZT's attempts to cover the story up, which doesn't look very good. Uh, I think it's interesting primarily not for ZTE so much, but for the implications on Huawei. Huawei has big, big ambitions to be a global brand. Uh, It's been trying very hard in particular to break into the United States. It's done quite a good job of establishing itself in emerging markets, and uh, it's built a a successful business doing that. It has not had as much luck getting into the major networks in the U.S. because as a Chinese company and a Chinese company that has from its founding days some links with the military here, uh, it's it's a hot potato in, in American political eyes. And uh, there has been a fair amount of opposition to Huawei equipment being incorporated into the major U.S. telecoms networks, which are used by the government. There's been suggestions that Huawei equipment, Chinese equipment, could have backdoors that would enable cyber warfare on American networks or that would enable spying. Um, I don't buy into much of this, but uh, it seems to get a fair amount of play in Washington. So what I found interesting about this is that a scandal for ZTE doesn't just affect ZTE. I think it's very easy if you're an American politician to conflate the two companies, Chinese telecoms equipment companies, both with deep links to the state, both easily portrayed as instruments of Chinese policy. Uh, And frankly, and what I wrote in the blog was, 
if I were Huawei working years to establish a better reputation in the United States and build this business there, I'd now be sending my PR and lobbying bill straight to ZTE because if this scandal grows legs and the FBI investigation turns out to be for real, uh, then these charges are going to really affect both companies. Is it the same in Europe, Tanya, do you know, uh, with Huawei and ZTE or Will? Um, I mean, are, are they meeting the same type of resistance that they're meeting in the United States? I think it's slightly different because there's a sort of politicization of the relationship with China in the States that doesn't work in quite the same way in it's Europe. I mean, you look at you look at the kind of the Olympics Ferrari where, you know, people are saying, well, we should burn these Olympic uniforms because they're made in China. And you think, well, hang on a sec, Chinese athletes are all being sponsored by American companies. Yeah, there's, it doesn't have quite that edge so are there sort of concerns yes um and it, it as will says it kind of goes back to that basic underlying story which is whatever huawei does people think pla links that's that's kind of the thing in their head you know but it's it's not as emotive it's not sort of visceral i think well in the united states it fits squarely into the u.s china global supremacy rivalry narrative which is becoming well established for really what I think are a lot of unhealthy reasons. Uh, and it doesn't help that we're in an election year, which always makes China a bit of a football. So I, I think the issue is charged in the United States, and, and it's charged because China is seen as America's major geopolitical rival right now. It's charged because cyber spying, for political reasons, has been built up into a major topic. It's being used as a lever to generate spending uh, defense spending and, and uh, business investment in, in uh, uh, computer security and related areas. Uh, and it's a very easy way to create fear and drive an agenda. And what that means is whether, it doesn't matter how clean Huawei is, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be the target of accusations and allegations. And even if a, if a competitor like ZTE is implicated, people will generalize very quickly to Chinese businesses or similar Chinese businesses very quickly. And it's not just the Europe and the U.S. Actually, I believe Australia just rejected the use of Huawei equipment in its telecoms networks for similar Even reasons. Even India has had some, I seem to recall a year or so ago, India rejected also there was a, uh, some uh, phone switching equipment of some kind from Huawei that uh, was rejected on similar grounds. So it'll be interesting to see how it goes, but it's... If this gathers legs, if the ZTE investigation gathers legs, watch and see if it gets used against Huawei as well. I bet it will. And personally, I think they ought to be able to compete on commercial grounds. Uh, I'm not over. Is that likely to happen? Uh, not in the U.S. It's not. It's, there's no way it's going to be depoliticized in the U.S. no time soon. Uh, and it, it, it may be that... Huawei would still have to transform itself very significantly to even begin making major headway. They've hired foreign representatives in the U.S. They've lobbied. They've engaged in PR. They still have some issues, among which are the fact that their CEO, Ren Zhengfei, won't talk to the media. He's not very visible to press. Uh, that's one thing I think as a PR person would go a long way to demystifying him and demystifying the company, but it's something they've never done. They've made, never made him available, certainly not to foreign media. Mm -hmm. So he remains an enigma, and an, an enigma at the top of the company, particularly when it's the person who's seen as the originator of links with the army, that's going to continue to provide ammunition to people who are critical or who are suspicious of Huawei, as will CTE's problems. Yeah, and uh, uh, I mean, as any good PR will tell you, without... 
uh, wishing to diminish their role, there's only so much you can do in terms of presentation. Absolutely. You know, the, the fact that they won't bring him out, the fact that he doesn't do interviews, creates this aura of mystery which people are able to spin as being sort of slightly sinister and... That's it. I mean, full stop. They can spin it as being slightly sinister. Why won't he talk to us? What does he have to hide? It's a classic PR situation. Uh, what should they do? Not overreact to it. Continue to try to demonstrate that they're creating great products that are cheaper than the com competition, much of which comes from Europe, actually. Uh, and being successful in other markets, that's, there's not much else they can do at this point, short of being more open and being more transparent with foreign media. Um, Will, could you ever foresee a time when Americans would, st would start saying, what about the Trojan horses embedded in Foxconn manufactured devices? Actually, I think it's been raised before. Um, Which allegation I just made up, by the way. I'm yeah, not uh, no, insinuating I, I that believe it's true. I, it would be worth hopping on the internet and double checking, but I believe that's actually been raised before as, as a possible issue. Let's put it this way. When it becomes politically expedient for somebody to raise that as an issue, it will be raised as an issue, I assure you. I don't think it has yet. Because all rich Americans own a lot of Apple stocks. But the so other thing is, right, the, the American consumer brands and European consumer brands that make use of Foxconn are much harder targets than Chinese companies are directly. Right. Uh, that They have their own problems in that activists will target well-known American consumer brands to drive their agendas because that's what creates a link with people back home. Why do you go after Apple? Because it's relevant to everybody. Whereas if you just talk about Foxconn in the abstract, nobody back home is going to care. Um, but, but, but American companies and European companies will have a layer of insulation that a Chinese brand like Huawei or like ZTE does not have, and they're going to be more vulnerable as a result. Okay, let's move on to our final section of the podcast, recommendations. What you got for us, Will? Um, well, what I have is uh, a friend of mine, uh, a journalist I've known for many years who now writes for uh, – a uh, well-known tech blog based out of Silicon Valley called Pando Daily it covers startups and investments. It was started by Sarah Lacey, who's ex-TechCrunch. Uh, a journalist uh, acquaintance of mine of many years named Hamish McKenzie has been on a bit of a road trip through Asia uh, and through China in the last uh, week or two. And he's been doing a lot of reporting and meeting with people in China. He's written several uh, interesting posts recently. Uh, he sat down with uh, people from Xiaomi. He sat down with uh, people from Baidu. Uh, and he's been doing some very good coverage of uh, the startup and tech environment in China, taking what I think is a very clear-eyed point of view. He's talked about some ways in which Chinese companies and the Chinese internet industry has advantages over the U.S., uh, despite all the problems that we as foreign users of the Chinese internet recognize. He's talking about things like how adept many have been at going straight into mobile uh, because they haven't had to overcome the desktop legacy that a lot of uh, American internet companies have done. Uh, he's talked about their decreasing dependence on U.S. financing and U.S. venture, and I, I think it's been very, very interesting. So if you follow the tech scene in China and this kind of stuff interests you, I would recommend going over to Pando Daily. You can find uh, Hamish's uh, author page. Just Google Pando Daily uh, Hamish McKenzie. Uh, and uh, you'll come right to his author page, and there'll be a, a, a links to all the articles he's written on this trip. I think he's been doing some very interesting stuff. Excellent. Tanya? Uh, well, this is going to sound horribly incestuous, but if you haven't read Will's blog on Godzilla, 
<laughs> and why China doesn't have a Godzilla yet, then uh, you really should. It's over at Rectified Name, and that was just a terrific piece. Um, the other Thank you, I'll you a drink. Thank you, Gandhi. Uh, the other no, thing... no, no, please. Let's keep this above board. There was a recommendation. It <laughs> yeah, wasn't no based on a bribe. I'm just being transparent. <laughs> um, and the, I'm actually going to recommend something I haven't read yet, but I'm very confident will be good, which is Pankaj Mishra's new book. Um, for a start, it's essentially a sort of takedown of uh, Niall Ferguson, by all accounts, which is always a good thing, in my view. Um, but he's a very interesting <laughs> writer. Uh, and he has a new book. There's an excellent review by Julia Lovell, another great writer. And uh, China, in the guard, and, and on the China Guardian person, site right? today, and a China person. Yeah. Um, in fact, her book on the Opium War. The Opium was War terrific. is a good book. We've recommended. Someone has recommended it before. I'm sure we probably have. You. I'm not sure. No, it wasn't you. It was somebody else. Anyway, oh, good. Okay, um, I have a recommendation that is uh, sort of tangentially related to to uh, China. It's the podcast uh, Melvin Bragg's In Our Time podcast, which is a very highbrow BBC series where Melvin Bragg gets together a bunch of, they're usually academics, I think, but experts, and they discuss everything from, you know, Plato to the phases of the moon in a, in a very erudite way. Uh, he recently did one on Hadrian's Wall, uh, which is the great stone wall that basically built by Hadrian to divide off England from Scotland, essentially, right, Tanya? I thought you were about to say it was it's part of the, the Great Wall. It's always the well, barbarians as the Great the Wall of China expands ever further. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just think it's very interesting to listen to this because one has to remember, in fact, that the Great Wall maybe in some ways is not as great as Hadrian's Wall. Hadrian's Wall was... Uh, Careful now. It's big. Mm. <laughs> it's made of really solid stone. We have extremely good... Uh, uh, ruins of it in very, very good condition. And this thing is 2,000 years old, unlike most of the Great Wall, which is in fact only four, 500 years old in China. So I just think it's uh, uh, a very good reminder sometimes of the, the 5,000 years uh, is uh, not uh, unique uh, by any means, and that there are great walls in other countries. So I recommend the Hadrian's Wall podcast, very tangential to China, but there we go. Excellent. And you've hurt the feelings of the Chinese people. I in have. The, in oh, the yeah. process of recommendation. Bring it on. Jeremy at Dummy.org. <laughs> send it. Well, I hope it's as entertaining as your last hate mail. <laughs> but uh, no, the only thing I would say is, as, as a Brit and uh, uh, big In Our Time fan, it's uh, fantastically geeky, but also just fantastic podcast. And all the back episodes are now online, which, if you're as sad as I am, is actually great sort of evening listening. Oh, no. It's not sad. It's called uh, erudite uh, and um, stimulating and stimulated. Anyway, <laughs> on that, that... We're sure you have a vibrant social life. Vibrant. <laughs> Occasional. <laughs> um, on that note, then, thank you, Will. Thank you, Tanya. It's been a very entertaining podcast. And Welcome. hope to see some of you next week. Thank you.